Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. When you want to talk rates and Fed and all those banker stuff, you turn to Ira Jersey, you know, you head down uh, the Turnpike, the Parkway, Route 1, you get to Princeton, New Jersey, and that's where Ira Jersey is with the, the Bloomberg Intelligence Strategy Team. By the way, on your way there, you can stop for gas and fill up for what, $3.13? Yes, on Route 71 in Wall Township this weekend. Which is, low, you know, for, just a drop for the energy prices. And that's part of the reason, Ira, that we saw this um, inflation report come in light. Um, it's good news, obviously, for the Fed. Uh, if you buy it, it's good news for the country as well. Does this mean no more hikes are necessary? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, this number takes hikes off the table, I think, at this point. And, yeah, you know, like you mentioned, the WIRP function and just looking at what short-term interest rate products are doing, we're now pricing in for even more cuts in 2024. Um, I, I'm still skeptical that the Federal Reserve will actually cut, but certainly the market is thinking that there is a risk of that. And, yeah, you know, th this is what's been happening, though, is that the market's been extrapolating these trends from single numbers. And, you know, we, we have to think that, okay, maybe we got a zero inflation this month, but next month if we get a 0.1 or a 0.2, it's still slower inflation than we had earlier this year, but it's still you know, not gonna be necessarily near the Fed's comfort zone, at least not yet. So what other parts of the market do you look at to get a sense of kind of where you know, future rates may go here? 
Yeah, so so the, the big market now, it used to be the euro dollar market and not meaning the actual dollar, but meaning um, dollars in your in Europe and interest rates on, on short term uh, on short term products. So if you look at the SOFR futures now, uh, you've seen a big shift uh, over the last two weeks where um, SOFR was thinking at the end of 2025 uh, was was going to be uh, that, that we were going to have short term interest rates uh, somewhere around three and a half percent. Now it's uh, it's even lower than that. Right. So so we're, we're seeing some shifts in the market that um, uh, like 25 basis points over the last two weeks in in the market's expectation for where rates are going to be in two years. So so SOFR futures are a big one. Um, obviously, Fed funds futures as well. But Fed funds futures, most of the volume is really in the first six months uh, of those contracts. So so you looking at longer term and what the market's thinking for policy rates. SOFR is the much better uh, product for that. By the way, Paul, you have made a killing on your two years. Sure. You know, as the rate uh, obviously comes down, the price goes up. You don't yep. need to worry about no. reinvestment risk. You can sell those things at a profit. Exactly right. I mean, just today, I mean, we had five spot zero four. Now we're 4.85%. So just a big move in the short term. Yeah. B- these big moves keep happening. Is there any problem with this much volatility in the Treasury market, Ira? I'm looking at uh, 20 basis point drops on threes, fives, and sevens, and almost that much, 18 and change on twos and tens. Is that a problem? I don't think it's a problem. I think it's a sign of the new environment that we're in with the amount of with the amount of bonds that are outstanding versus the capacity of dealers and other intermediaries to actually see all the flow and, and take on risk to redistribute that risk at some point is much lower today. And, and you know, part of this is electronification of the markets and, and the like. So, so you're likely to continue to see these. So actually, we were just looking this morning at comparing where, uh, you know, the types of moves we're seeing now versus, say, 1997, when you had interest rates that were a little bit higher than they are now, but six, seven percent on the ten year instead of you know four and a half, five. Um, but you actually had regularly 15, 20 basis point moves. So um, you know, given the level of rates, this is not that unusual. I think the thing is, is we were used to the last decade when interest rates were near zero, and when you had ten year yields at two percent, you know, a five basis point move seemed really big. Now that you're at um, you know five percent, then you know maybe a ten basis point move or a fifteen basis point move is kind. Uh, you know, on the larger size, but also not particularly unusual. So, so I think you'll see more of these, uh, partially due to rate, partially due um, to shifts in uh, in the market structure. That um, you know, just going to provide for more, uh, you know, more jumps in the market when people are one way and and you know want to get want to get out of risk or into risk in uh, uh, because of data or because of uh, some news out of the Fed, for example. So, Ira, when I first got the Solomon Brothers, the Solomon had like an army of government bond traders. No kidding. I mean, just dozens of them. And they were all trading for their book, trading for clients. And they made a lot of money. I'm guessing they also lost money from time to time. Does that even exist on Wall Street anymore? Do government trading desks exist? And do they are they profit centers anymore? So there are government, uh, yeah, there are clearly government bond traders. I think that the what what you've seen, and this started, you know, in the last twenty odd years, um, you know, and, and progressed while I was on the street myself, is that you went from having, you know, five 
six people trading treasuries and just treasuries um, to having somewhat less than that because you have uh, more automated pricing. So you get auto pricers and, and electronic trading platforms that basically um, you know look at supply and demand and and you know price smaller trades um, in uh, in you know just electronically without necessarily the dealer having to take much risk. But for those bigger trades and for trades that um, you know of, of decent size, you still have a person who has to accept that trade because whether or not it fits their risk limits of their trading book. Um, and banks make money on this. You know, you talk to you know Allison Williams who covers a lot of the dealers here at uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, and and you look and you know sometimes fixed income trading and is uh, is a big profit center, and then other times, obviously 2022 for example was not a particularly good year um, for for trading, primarily because you get stuck with risk, and because you get stuck with that risk, you um, you wind up losing money when when bond prices go down and yields go up. So um, so, so I, I think that that you know the, the market's changed, um, and certainly the 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 size of the market and the size of the dealer community has shrunk a little bit, right, in terms of personnel. And the liquidity? Um, and, and also risk-taking. Yeah, liquidity is definitely lower. Uh, so you look at the Bloomberg Liquidity Index, which basically shows you how much off the run bonds. So these are, aren't like the current tenure, but the tenure issued, say, six months ago. Um, liquidity in those securities in particular has gone way down. Um, and, and that's really where you, I think you see some of the pain points. And one reason why dealers, um, you know, aren't willing to take as much risk in some of those off the run security. So, so getting out of out of risk sometimes is going to be much more difficult today than it had been in uh, in past years. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sticking with my thought that we had way more fun on Wall Street than the kids do today. I'm, I'm sure I'm you sticking did. Sticking with that point. Well, it depends which kids, right? Uh, yeah, I'm just you know I walk on a desk today. I'm like. There's nobody there. I mean, you know, there's a relatively, no, I don't know. But uh, anyway, they're making tons of money over there, so good for them. Ira Jersey, uh, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. Unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Mikey Shaw, he is one of our senior analysts over in London. 
uh, covering the farmer space. Uh, he's been doing it a long time, along with that guy Sam Fazelli. Mikey's got much better hair than Sam Fazelli. We'll go there right away. <laughs> um, I'm jealous. Exactly. <laughs> it's overflowing. So, Mike, you guys have done a ton of work on these GLP-1 drugs. Can you frame out? We've had a little bit of time now to kind of think about this and, and look at the different products out there. But where, where are we in terms of developing that market, that part of the market? I mean, in terms of penetration rates with GLP-1 drugs for obesity, um, I think we're still in the very early stages. Um, excitement out around the classes, you know, is constantly growing, um, even more so after this weekend where we saw the, cardi the, the detailed cardiovascular outcomes data in obese patients um, for Wagovi. I think that was met very positively um, by the prescriber community in general. Um, it, we saw kind of early benefits as, as early as day one in terms of, you know, these drugs can reduce uh, major adverse cardiovascular events um, in, you know, in these heavy obese patients. Um, I mean, but there's also still a lot to be kind of learnt in terms of, you know, the mechanism itself. Um, when we look at the, um, I mean, the two curves of interest are, are the, you know, the cardiovascular um, outcomes curve um, and then the body weight um, curve. So we saw well, an and diabetes, right? Because if you're pre-diabetic and you can't stop eating Haagen Dazs, this thing could be a lifesaver. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> so I mean, when we look at obesity, it's obviously it's a um, a risk factor. Um, for you know diabetes and and in that data set um, it showed that um, you know it, d it definitely cut um, the the move of pre-diabetics um, to you know developing diabetes um, and I mean the, the the key question though with with the data is yes body weight is a contributing factor but given the um, disparities we saw in terms of maximum weight loss being achieved. Um, and that early separation of the cause, uh, of the of the cardiovascular outcomes curve, um, it's not the sole, you know, driver. So right. the, the, you know, there's a secret ingredient. What's doing it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what Novo said. It's got an X factor, which we, <laughs> you know, we need to find out more about. Well, that's what you did. Like this weekend, you were at a conference, right? Yeah, up so in Boston. Where was it? It was in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Okay. Oh, so you saw the apparently multiple rounds of applause when the data were released. Yeah. So the room, the room was full. It was like a, almost a standing ovation. Okay. No, see, he, okay. When I go to a conference, this is my schedule. I get up, have a little business breakfast, maybe a little business lunch, maybe a meeting in the afternoon, and then boom, dinner. Then we go to the craps table in Vegas. That's how you do an investor conference. <laughs> These guys, healthcare, they go on the weekend. And they go into these conference rooms for like 10 hours and have to deal with all this medical scientific data. And you guys actually have to write research notes based upon this stuff on a weekend, by the way. That's what you guys do, right? Yeah, that's about right. See, that's just no way to <laughs> do Yeah, but your badge is worth two drinks at the meet and greet after. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right, so, but in reality, how have you guys sized out this market? Because Dude, I've seen listen, listen, I have some important questions. Okay, because okay, I want to get this. I've got a doctor's appointment on December 7th, and hopefully he's going to hook me up. I need to lose 20 <laughs> pounds. I want to avoid getting diabetes, and I don't want to die of a heart attack. Um, well, then this you know, better. And I, and I have very weak – I have no willpower, right? <laughs> so I'm hoping that this drug can do this for me and maybe do my taxes as well. Um I don't want to lose muscle. I only I only want to lose fat. Is there a competitor to Ozempic slash Wegovy that is going to help me with that? I mean, in terms of the, the the data with regards to kind of lean 
um, the loss of lean, uh, lean muscle. Um, it, it's limited at the moment, but you know, Lily has done a deal um, for, for a drug. Um, which potentially, when used in combination with their drug, uh, which is well just got approved as Zetbound, that could potentially um, address, address that issue. Okay, so that's one question I have. The other one is, do I go Ozempic because I really want to avoid diabetes and a heart attack? I mean, I need to lose 20 pounds. I don't have to, right? I'm not morbidly obese. Or do I go Wegovy? Um, because it's a stronger dose and actually has better results for, for heart issues? Um, I mean, in order to get Wagovi, as in because of the supply issues, it needs to be on label, right? So you need to be either overweight uh, with a, comor- uh, a weight-related comorbidity, so that might be diabetes, um, or you need to be you know, um, clinically obese, so BMI of 30 or above. Okay, um, I don't check that box, but yeah. I feel like I know people. I can go to Canada, you know. I can get the drug elsewhere. But <laughs> so you're saying, like, is WeGovy the right choice? But it's going to be hard to get, or should I just settle for Ozempic? I mean, at the moment, there's a lot of off-label use of a, of Ozempic simply because of the supply um, supply situation um, with WeGovy. Um, in in essence, you know, the active ingredient of these of these drugs are both semaglutide. Um, and in both cases, you would start off a lo- at a lower dose and then start titrating up. So the maximum dose for, um, for Zempic is 2 milligrams. All right. The maximum dose for Wagovi is 2.4. All right. Amy from South Carolina writes in, how long does someone have to stay on the weight loss drugs? Forever? A few weeks? And when you stop taking it, does the weight come back on? What's the data show there? Yeah, so there's clinical data um, from both Lily and Novo showing that, you know, as soon as you stop these drugs, um, you eventually, you know, put on, put the weight back on. Ah. Um, prescribers we've spoken to as well, um, they're all kind of um, saying, you know, chronic dosing of these drugs um, are needed. Um, but, I mean, there are, you know, there are various kind of uh, things that you could, you know, potentially do. You could potentially, you know, reach your targeted weight loss, and then perhaps you lower the dose of the drug. Who pays for this stuff? So that's one of the main questions See, at the moment. That's, you got to go know. to the money. But Mikey, we have the same insurance provider. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and if I go in there and I test like positive for pre-diabetes, or if I have a BMI of like 27, 28, are they gonna, is my insurance going to pay for this? I think as we get more and more data, we're going to see kind of access and reimbursement for these drugs um, improve. I think the um, the outcomes data for Wagovi, you know, is a big step in the right direction there. Um, the whole, um, I mean, the, what insurers need to do is, you know, balance that um, the short term costs, which are going to be high, of you know GLP one therapy versus the long term benefits in terms of, you know, saving. Um, cost savings through reducing kind of hospitalizations and dude and i'm sure deaths, there's an actuary at novo nordisk <laughs> and the boss comes into his office and says how much uh does heart disease and diabetes and uh, obesity cost right the uh, world and he it's says trillions yeah and then he says okay let's price our drug for that price right <laughs> that's exactly what they want to do they want to get it so some studies say it saves some studies say it doesn't but it's basically at the same level yeah, I mean, like the if if you look at the um, the direct and indirect costs of 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 obesity and diabetes and diabetes, it runs into the trillions, yeah. right? Um, and you know, all the prescribers we spoke to um, at the conference, you know, they believe in these drugs. They believe that 
eventually they'll be cost effective in terms of as we get more competition coming into the market, that price point will come down. As we see orals, which are cheaper to produce, yep. um, also That's get approved, that price point's going to come That's down That's what too. we need. All right, Mikey Shaw joins us. He's the senior industry analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Dude, you got to come here to New York more often. Stop. <laughs> I mean, we see Sam a lot. Who cares? Uh, we'd rather talk to the smart uh, money behind the healthcare research at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Mikey Shaw joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Jake Saber knows, did I pronounce it right? You did. Jake uh, Saber, founder, general partner of Emergence Capital. He's out there in Silicon Valley. He does all that stuff. So, I, I, when I when we talk about AI, Jake, I like to ask people, just say, from your perspective, what is AI? It's machines helping humans do their jobs. Machines helping humans do their jobs. All right, I'm down with that. So how do you guys view that space and maybe how you view investment opportunities for your venture capital Yeah, fund? totally. Well, I'll start with just some context on like where we think this fits in in enterprise software more broadly. We're focused just on enterprise software, B2B software, something okay. that I'll be near and dear to the hearts of, of Bloomberg folks, probably, yep, presumably. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our firm started 20 years ago with a thesis that software would move from on-premise to the cloud. Okay. That thesis Good largely bet. worked, right? <laughs> so bet. the very first investment for us in 04 was in Salesforce. Ah, we were investing in okay. all sorts of enterprise software companies like Zoom ever since. And we think that this AI wave is very similar to the wave of on-prem to the cloud. Okay. So just like that was transformational for tech, we think this will be transformational. We're very bullish and we're very focused on how we can help B2B software companies make that transition. But should we have a, should we have a fast food company talking about AI on an earning, quarterly earnings conference call? I think it's real, right? Like there's so much hysteria. And so you have to cut through all the crap to figure out what's real. But like in the case of fast food, the idea of using this to help augment the people doing the drive-throughs and make drive-throughs more efficient, like that's very real. Voice recognition technology is real. So I think what, what may be in danger is I think a lot of tech companies, public companies over the past six months have gotten so excited they may have overcommitted, overpromised on what they can do with AI in the near term. So we may be you know, near term negative, but I think over the long run this thing's gonna work. Dude, think about, you don't want a high school, like a stoner that you hired for your <laughs> drive-through to be like, do you want fries with that? He's not gonna be enthusiastic about it. He's not gonna to remember to ask every time. Like AI can be better at upselling okay. in the drive-thru. Right. Uh, Stoners think it's are pretty genius. good at upselling though. I feel like <laughs> That's they're hungry. True. So true. Like... Man, these fries are so good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so what's the next, I, well, I wanna say what's the next, because I don't even know where the kind of the starting point is, but. Well, NVIDIA is the only one that we really know, right? Yeah. I mean, Microsoft, okay, with OpenAI, yeah. um, but where do you invest? I mean, you're not, yeah, yeah. You're not looking solely at public markets, no. so you have a much better view yeah. of, you know, what's, what the roots are yeah. down underground. What yeah. are you looking at? So the way I'd think about it is like, there's, there's different layers to the AI stuff. There's NVIDIA, which is at the base layer, right? It's the actual, you know, chips that are helping power this. Then there's the foundational models. This is OpenAI and you know, Microsoft's developing their own in addition to OpenAI and there's a bunch of others. And then there's the application layer. And that's the stuff we're most excited about, which is what do you do with this stuff once it's built? Right? You don't just build it for the sake of building it, but how can you make the stoner dude more effective at taking your order? How can you help doctors treat patients more effectively? How can you help lawyers go through contracts more effectively? So we're investing in companies that do all that stuff aided by AI. So all right, now given, it feels like we're in the, the, the top of the first inning for, for AI. Yeah. Where are you guys looking and what types of deals are you guys looking at? Yeah, for sure. So um, we're seeing a lot of activity in vertical specific AI solutions. 
And this actually mirrors software. So in the first wave of cloud technology, horizontal SaaS was the thing. So Salesforce, Workday, et cetera. In the second wave, it was vertical SaaS or what we at Emergence call industry cloud. These are companies like Viva Systems, which is a $30 billion public company selling into the pharmaceutical industry. The same thing is starting to happen in AI where you're taking this technology and instead of just trying to broadly apply it anywhere, you're actually choosing a specific job to be done and you're having it solve that problem. So um, we have invested in companies, uh, as I said, that use this technology to do help lawyers draft contracts better. So the idea is you can, as you're writing contracts, say, hey, help me make this clause mutual and it will use AI to help draft that. We've invested in companies that help doctors uh, communicate with insurance companies and write the letters to get approvals for different treatments. A company called Doximity that does that. So that kind of concept we think is going to be really powerful. The question is, what are the jobs to be done uh, for which this technology is most applicable in the near term? And what are the data sets um, that they use to train on? Is that like a sticky issue? Because yeah. Recently, Elon Musk came out with his competitor to OpenAI, Grok, Grok. and apparently it's supposed to use real-time Twitter like, data. Twitter data. Yeah. I didn't even know that they, they could do that without breaking certain, you know, privacy clauses. Maybe they don't mind, but yeah. you know, I think of Google. They have so much uh, data, you know, at their fingertips. Can they use all that? So I think companies, the larger companies, are the ones that have to be the most conservative about this, which is kind of interesting, actually. Like in many ways, those are the folks that have the most to lose. And so startups, I think, can be more innovative on this front. They can you know, find different sets of data and actually kind of outmaneuver some of the incumbents. There's a real innovator's dilemma problem for the incumbents here. Right? If you're Google, if you're Salesforce, if you're one of these established public companies, you have a lot to lose in this from a legal perspective. You also, if you drastically try to change your UX, your user interface, let's say doing a chat-based interface is better than doing the traditional interface, you could piss off a lot of your existing users. So there's risk there. There's also risk on business models. I think a lot of these technologies are starting to think about how do I charge not on a per seat basis or usage basis, but actually on an outcomes basis. Because this technology actually can help you process contracts more quickly or you know, cure patients more quickly or what have you. What if you could start actually charging on that basis, which would be disruptive to the incumbent? So from as a startup investor perspective, which is what I'm focused on, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about what are the advantages a startup has over the incumbent in this new era? How much incremental CapEx, if I just look at it, the macro tech CapEx numbers I get from IDC or whatever, and I see some of these big growth rates, how much of that do you think is incremental AI or maybe taking from some other bucket and putting it into AI. I don't yeah. know how much to, to think about is how much is incremental. It's a really good question. I think some of it will actually come from labor, uh. right? So um, if you had hired a consulting firm before to help you implement some new technology uh, and you had a big budget for that consulting firm, it's very possible that you can use AI to help you implement this technology more effectively, and so you don't need to spend as much on consulting firms. Interesting. Um, which actually like brings me to an another point I was, I've been reflecting on, which is we thought that it was like the stoner dude that was going to be most at risk in this age of AI, that it was a lot of the kind of more blue collar workers, you know, the janitors, the nannies, et cetera. Um, what's happened with this past year of AI is it seems like white collar workers are actually the ones that may have more infringement upon their daily work. Yeah. And as a result, they're the ones who have to probably get up to speed faster on how to make use of this technology to augment what they do. Otherwise, they may fall by the wayside. I always think about this as well, the uh, the jobs at risk, but what will be created? Yeah. You know, because every time there's a technological wave or an industrial wave, um, it does knock out a whole group of jobs, but it also creates so many more. Totally. So what's going to be created here? Yeah. It's not just more coders, right? Please no. No, say it's it, not more coders. No, in some ways we may have... 
we may have uh, different types of coders in the sense that you may not need to know as much code because the AI can help you do it. So you'll have probably more of a democratization, so there'll be more people that code, but you may have less people that do it as their full-time job. Um, I do think like in the near term, um, figuring out how to implement this technology in existing tech stacks is something that everyone's figuring out real time. Remember, like this ChatGPT thing, it's a year old. Like we've aged a yeah. ton in a year. Yeah. So yeah. what's it going to yeah. look like in a year or two years from now? So I think, I think the world will look different and jobs will look very different. Hey, Jake, just on the VC business today, talk to us about what it's like out in Sand Hill Road out there. And if I have a cool technology, can will you fund it? Well, I'll start by saying Sand Hill Road isn't what it used to be. Really? Yeah. What I mean by that is like... And I'll, where did Sand Hill Road come from? Sand Hill Road went to San Francisco. From? From Sand Hill. So Sand Hill... From New Jersey, actually. Started. Oh, sure. From the, Men, yeah, yeah. And Menlo enough. Park... New, California, where'd that come from? It Menlo was copied Park, from New Jersey. Jersey. No, no, much love to the East Coast. Like, there's so much Institute happening here. Institute for Advanced Study, Albert Einstein. Okay. My, back, my backyard. Go ahead. There's there's a lot of history that came from the East Coast that made the West Coast what it is. And, and actually, the military is a lot of what yeah, made yeah. Uh, the West Coast and, and Silicon Valley what it is. Anyway, Silicon Valley and uh, and Sand Hill in particular have moved up to uh, San Francisco oh, largely. Okay. I think there's more action okay. there. We're at Pier 5, uh, actually right yeah, next right to next Bloomberg. Us, right? Yeah. Um, Oh, but, you get that Humphrey Slocum action. Yeah, like there's a lot of ways to, um, you were talking about Wagovi before, so if you want to you know, get on that train, <laughs> that might be the right way to do it. I need to get some secret breakfast first, yeah, and exactly. then I'll do the Wagovi. Exactly. Thing. But to answer your question on like, what's the state of VC, um, there's kind of a weird um, bipolar state of VC right now. And we got about 20 seconds. <laughs> cool. What I mean by that is like, there's lots of hysteria and excitement on AI, some of which is justified, and there's also some real challenges that these companies who are dealing with high interest rates and having slower yep. sales cycles are facing. All right. Yep. We'll get you back next time you're in the big town here. Uh, Jake Saper, he is the general partner of Emergence uh, Capital. We can do it over Zoom, too. We can do it over no, Zoom. No, we no, love Zoom. You know? No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't. We, we go, we go uh, real time here. That's how we do it. Uh, Jake, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, markets tearing it up here today on the back of some good inflation data. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I did not know what CGM meant until just recently. Continuous 
glucose monitoring. That's yeah. A, that's a big deal. Well, and I've been interested in it. Um, you know, I don't have diabetes yet. You're in good shape. What are you talking about? But I'm sure it's in my future because I eat so many sugary foods. But well, I mean, I'm fortunately I'm trying to stop. I've been interested in these um, continuous glucose monitors for a while, just because I'd like to see uh, how my body reacts to different foods. For example, you could eat, you and I could eat the exact same meal, and we could have very different um, responses in terms of, you know, uh, how that. Uh, makes our blood sugars yeah. react. Yeah. And I, I think it's really interesting information to have, especially interesting for athletes um, or for people who are really uh, monitoring their health closely. But for now, um, diabetics are, are getting to use these products okay, good and stuff. have insurance pay for it. Jeremy Sylvan uh, joins us. He is the CFO of Dexcom. That is a NASDAQ-listed company. DXCM is a ticker uh, to put in there. They are based in San Diego, I believe. Nice choice. Jeez, lame. I Why mean, aren't we all based know, in San Diego? I, I don't what, understand when. I don't know what you know, we're doing. When the here. founding fathers set everything up. <laughs> Exactly. Why New York? <laughs> and why Washington? I mean, it's nice, but... All right, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. DX, uh, Dexcom, for our listeners, tell us what you guys do, kind of how you play uh, the game here. Yeah, sure, and, and thanks for having us here. Um, Dexcom, we make continuous glucose monitors, Boom. as you mentioned, our G6 and our G7 series, as well as Dexcom 1. And what the, really the product is, it does is that there's a small uh, inter needle that goes right beneath your skin into your interstitial fluid. It monitors your glucose throughout the course of the day. And so for anybody that is monitoring their glucose levels because they take insulin, because they take other drugs like GLP-1s, um, as they monitor their food, their sleeping patterns, and ultimately their exercise patterns, we're able to monitor in real time and give feedback as to how your glucose levels are moving in your body really minute by minute every five minutes we send a, a ping to your phone or to the receiver we do that it's obviously very beneficial to those that need to manage their glucose levels um and by the way that really spans the entire population it's yeah. really the fifth yeah. vital sign so but uh it's interesting that you say you can use it to work with glp1s to work with semaglutides like ozempic mm -hmm. and WeGovy. are you seeing more uh, more customers do that we are in fact you know what we see is if you look at the prescribing patterns, you're really realizing these are companion therapies. You're seeing more, our, our prescriptions actually increase um, when you have somebody who's using a GLP-1, and what you find is the outcomes are better. Um, there's an increase in A1C reduction when you have somebody using both of these products. And so, you know, we think about it as, if you want to think about it as therapy and diagnosis coming together, the therapy is the drug, the diagnostic is the real insight into what's happening in your body. Those two things are an incredibly powerful combination. You're seeing physicians prescribing more and more in that pattern. What are the, so for the, your CGM business, that is your, that is your business. Yes. Okay. What are the growth drivers on the top line for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the total addressable market is, is, is huge. Okay. And, and, you know, it's one of those things when we, we sought out to meet an unmet need, we realized, and, and you mentioned sugary foods, yep. a lot of us are sitting down more often than we have in the past. There is a challenge with glucose levels in the body. It started with folks using insulin, but it's really progressed beyond that. And so when you think about the entire population, diabetes, 30 million in the U.S., pre-diabetes, 90 million in the U.S., um, global diabetes, over 500 million, wow. yep. and only about 1% of the people that have diabetes in the world are on this therapy. So there's 99% to go. And so there's a real opportunity for us to continue to drive adoption, really change people's so lives. So do you, do you, is your customer the physician? 
Our customer is the physician, the payer, and the actual customer themselves. I mean, really, this is incredibly personal to, to the actual patient. They wear it on their body. Yep. The physician clearly wants to know it, how it helps them titrate medication. And then obviously the payer wants outcomes. And so you have to have a product that delivers outcomes. Ours delivers outcomes. So I've seen, uh, you see the YouTube videos or Instagram videos where somebody just kind of slaps it on the bottom of <laughs> her arm or his arm. It doesn't look like it hurts. Explain to, you say needle, but I feel like it's more of a wire almost, isn't it? That's what it is. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm wearing one now. Basically, you put on your body, you click a button, it comes on. I don't feel it. Uh, most folks don't. Um, when I say it's a, a, a little needle under, it's, a, it's about the size of a hair, and about a, about a quarter of an inch. And hair. how long do you leave it in your arm? For 10 days. So it stays in there for 10 days, giving you feedback over the course of those 10 days. Real easy to put on, real easy to take off, pairs with your phone, pairs with other devices as well. And do you leave it on all the time? Do you constantly have one on? Always. You have it on 24-7. You swim with it. Uh, I noticed you mentioned San Diego. You surf with it. If you guys ever want to try it and come out surfing with us, you're more than welcome to. Um, but absolutely part of, of wearing it 24-7. So it gives you that 24-7 feedback. What do you notice? I mean, when you have... I don't know, um, a glass of wine, do you see a change when you have, um, you know, peanut butter? Uh, I mean, wh what yeah. are the things that you notice? You change, you change your habits. You really do. I'll tell you what's good, whiskey. That's a good one. What's we, not good, I think beer. We all agree. So there you go. I mean, you're going to have to mm -hmm. battle between those if you want to keep it. But there are foods that you eat that you realize, to your point, your body interacts with differently. For me, it's rice. Rice sends me through the roof. And so what I've done is I've stayed, I've changed my behavior around my eating habits. I stay away from rice. I don't want that to impact my glucose levels, which obviously Why impacts your health. Why are you wearing the patch? So I, I, I wear it for the similar reason. I like to, well, one, I'm a bit of a, a sensor nerd since I work okay. at the company. So you're not doing, is this a prescription thing? It is a prescription thing. I have a prescription. Um, and, and why did you get the prescription? Um, because I wanted to monitor the glucose okay. levels. It was really important to me for long-term health considerations. But the target market is, is what? It's still those. Is, is it you? Or is it just somebody who has an underlying condition that we requires this yeah. type of monitoring. Today, it's really targeted at the diabetes population, okay. those impacted, so that population, but longer term, it will, we believe, go well beyond that. To folks hmm. that are monitoring their health before your physical. So the Apple Watch isn't enough, we gotta we got go another step. You have taking to be, it another step. You have to be accurate. And that's okay. the big thing, the difference between a healthy person and someone with prediabetes is very, very small, so accuracy is paramount. Yeah, 90 million people have prediabetes. See, I, get my, I go once a year for my checkup. That's not good enough. You, I'm sure, uh, are a healthy eater and an active fitness guy. Um, you don't need to worry about it. But I'm cramming like peanut butter and jellies down my throat as fast <laughs> as I can. You know, and uh, I like to watch TV. How That's much does this cost for Matt sports. when he doesn't have a prescription? When you don't have a prescription, you can get online. It's 179 for a month. That's three different sensors, 10 days each. And then... You, uh, I just think it's interesting. You know that rice drives your blood sugar higher. I would not have any idea if I'm sitting in front of a bowl of rice that that's going to do it. So, um, you know, we take these tests. The doctor will say, hey, avoid sugary foods. Don't eat anything after dinner and then uh, come in the next morning. I will avoid ice cream and, you know, obviously cake and candy. But I probably would eat a bowl of rice. No problem. And even sneak one in after dinner. Wow, look at you going crazy. Well, but then I would get a bad result on the test. You might even find out that the ice cream is actually good for you and the rice isn't. Ha, don't don't be, take my word for amazing. it. <laughs> All right, 21 buy ratings, three holds, and zero sells 
The stock has outperformed Medtronic, Insulate, Tandem Diabetes, and Abbott Labs over the last five years. What's, I looked at those because they make you know competing products or in the same space in the diabetes. What's space. the investment message you give to the street? You know, we have a product. It's the most accurate, simple. It's easy to use. It's covered. So we have a population in front of us, a TAM in front of us that we think is absolutely unparalleled. On top of that, we've been working very, very hard on profitability. I know that's top of mind for investors. And if you look at our performance, a 2,600 basis point increase over the last five years in profitability. So when you combine incredible top line growth, we grew 26% organically last quarter and the prior quarter, along with that profitability in this unmatched TAM, I think you really have uh, uh, an incredible investment opportunity. And we've been communicating that to the investing public for some time. And you know, you've seen that through our growth over the years, just really passionate about the company and the opportunity ahead. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, projections out there on the street, kind of high teens, low 20s, top line growth, EBITDA margin, mid 20s, going to high 20s, uh, and free cash flow positive. If you, can't, if you can't sell that, I think you need another job. So that's why we got all those buys <laughs> out there. So uh, Jeremy Sylvan, thank you so much for joining us. Jeremy is the CFO of Dexcom, uh, the symbol to put into your Bloomberg professional terminals, DXCM. Uh, they are, and he got his undergraduate degree from Arizona State, whose basketball team is coached Duke. by the greatest point guard in college history. That's Danny <laughs> Hurley. Good buddy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.